All right, so that was a lot. Um, let's uh, change the temperature in the room a little bit. Let me begin by telling you a story. Once it begins, as all good stories do, once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was a man who was down on his luck. He uh, had lost his job, hadn't been able to find another job, uh, was running out of money, couldn't really pay his rent, ended up getting evicted, found himself living in the park. And, and in a matter of like eight or nine months, everything in his life just slid downhill. He was sleeping on a park bench. And boy, was he sad. One day as he was sitting on the park bench, he was staring at the ground, which is what you do when you're depressed. And as he was staring at the ground, something blew up against his foot and he reached down and picked it up and it was a lottery ticket. He scratched the lottery ticket to reveal that he had won one million dollars. Boy, was he happy. And in his happiness, he looked across the street where he saw a convenience store with a big lottery logo in the window and he said, that's where I've gotta go. Started off running to the convenience store and his first step off the curb, he got hit by a bus. He woke up in the hospital having had to undergo all kinds of painful procedures and boy, was he sad. The end. Isn't that great? Isn't that a good story? Do you like that story? Yeah, we should do like a mini-series, right? Um, <laughs> I, I think that might be a great story for some of you parents to use as a bedtime story for your kids. Actually, I think it's a story that to one degree or another, we might all be able to relate to just a little more than we would like to think. You may not have um, been homeless, or maybe you have, I don't know, but you know what it's like to be sad because of your circumstances. Uh, you may not have ever won the lottery, maybe you have. If so, we have offering boxes on the back wall. <laughs> make you aware of that, but you do know what it's like to be very happy because of a change in your circumstances. You, uh, you may not have ever been hit by a bus, I hope. Maybe you have. But if so, you know what it's like to have your day go from really good to really bad with just one unexpected change. Life's like that. And I got to thinking about this uh, actually last week after listening to Pastor Dave's message from John 15 on abiding in the vine. And I wanna begin there. So if you have a Bible, I want you to go back so we can get the context set. Um, John chapter 15, if you didn't hear that message, um, go back and watch it online. It was fantastic. And uh, Dave did what you will never see me do, covered three chapters in one sermon. 
But uh, let me just hit the beginning of John chapter 15 with you as Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's literally having this conversation. If you're not aware, he's having this conversation with his 12 disciples as he is walking to the Mount of Olives where he's going to be at the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the moment. And he's having this conversation, and here's what he says to his disciples. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Verse 1, John 15. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away uh, as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as my father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. I want you to pay particular attention to verse 11. He's just gone through this whole thing explaining to them that abiding in him is the most important thing that they need to do. They can do nothing apart from abiding in him. This is essential teaching that he gives them. And then he tells them why he gave them the teaching. That's verse 11. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full There's something about abiding in Jesus. Not not just knowing about Jesus, not just um, thinking about Jesus, but actually abiding in Jesus, having your life grafted into the vine. There's something about that that leads to joy. He says, if you will abide in me in all these ways that I've talked about, your joy will be made full. Apparently, it's very important to Jesus that his followers experience joy. And so I thought it would be great for us to think a little more carefully than we probably normally do about this question of joy. What is joy? Is it, is it what the man in my little story had when he found his lottery ticket? Is it what he lost when he got hit by the bus and woke up in the hospital? No. That's happiness. It was happiness that the lottery ticket gave him. It was happiness that the bus took away from him. But that's not joy. Now, don't get me wrong. I have nothing against happiness. I'm a huge fan of happiness. I would much rather be happy than sad. Amen? Can you say, okay. So we're not anti-happiness, right? But at the same time, um, joy is an entirely different As great as happiness is, it pales in comparison to what the Bible calls joy. And joy, whatever that is, 
according to Jesus, is somehow intricately related to abiding in him. So this morning, I wanna invite you to join me in the book of Philippians. Philippians is in your New Testament. Just keep turning to the right from John, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So it's after Ephesians and before you get to Colossians, you'll find it toward the back of your New Testament. And I want you to join me there in Philippians chapter four because Philippians is known as Paul's letter of joy. It deals with this subject of joy from really beginning to end. And I want us to pick this up in Philippians chapter four. Join me beginning in verse four and let's uh, follow along as I read verses four through 13 of Philippians four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, verse 10 says, that now at least you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, we'll just stop there, and you can get that panicked look off your face. I'm not going to try to teach through all of that with the time I have left. But uh, over the next three weeks or so, we're going to look at all of that passage and begin to think about how that applies in our lives and how life-changing it can be. But today, our primary focus is going to be on verses 4 and 5. So let's go back and read those again. Uh, Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say... Rejoice. Rejoice. Good, you're paying attention. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Does God really, now, I mean, seriously, really, does God really expect us to just walk around being happy? no matter what happens, or, or let's even be more precise with our language. Does God really expect us to rejoice always? And I bring that question out because if you are like me, there are certain passages of scripture that as you're reading, you read it and, it and it sort of sounds like hyperbole. It sort of sounds like, well, he's just trying to make a point, but obviously he doesn't really expect us to live this way. I mean, who lives this way? Who really rejoices always? Does God really seriously now expect that? Not only does he expect it, but he makes it possible. 
And then he actually has the audacity here in this passage to command us to do it. This is not a suggestion. And this might be surprising to some of you, but there are passages, especially in Paul's letters, that are suggestions. He's saying, here's a way you could apply this. Here's something you could do. And he even says so at times. But this in the Greek is in the command voice. It means this is not optional. Rejoice always. And of course, when we read words like that, rejoice always, our immediate response is to say, yeah, but. Right? Just, and, and it's a command, right? He commands you, rejoice always. You go, okay, Lord, but. And what he does is what you do if you're a parent and your child responds with, yeah, but. So you say to your child, hey, put down the video game and go take out the trash. And your child goes, yeah, but dad. And you say, again I say, (laughs) put down the video game and take out the trash. This is not open for discussion is what you're saying. That's exactly what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. And just as we're getting yeah, but out of our mouth, he goes, again I say, rejoice. So obviously he's serious about this. Now you may be thinking, you know, going back to my wonderful bedtime story, if you lose your home, you get hit by a bus, find yourself in the hospital, or let's get a little closer to home, you lose a loved one, you go through a divorce, Your friend stabs you in the back. You get the diagnosis you've been dreading. You find yourself in jail. It's not realistic to be happy under the circumstances. To which I would say, I agree with you, but who said anything about happiness? It's so important for us to draw this distinction. He's not talking about an emotion that bubbles up within you because of your circumstances. He's talking about an abiding knowledge of truth that is there regardless of your circumstances that brings joy. We're talking here about joy. And I would also say this, if you're a Christian, you have to deal with the circumstances of life, but you don't have to be under the circumstances. You're under the blood. This verse is commanding us to rejoice always. Again, I say, rejoice. And by the way, when it says rejoice always, um, the, more, the more common translation of the word, that, the Greek word that is translated as always there is in all circumstances. That's interesting to me. Um, both are accurate translations, but, but if we think that he's saying rejoice always, we might think of it as some sort of perpetual sense of joy that is bubbling over in me. I'm rejoicing when I'm sleeping and rejoicing when... But, but he's really saying rejoice in all circumstances, whatever your circumstances may be, in whatever circumstances you may find yourself. He is saying that in Christ you can rejoice regardless of the circumstances. 
Remember what Jesus said about this idea of abiding in him. He said in verse 11, I said this to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Joy, full, joyful. Now, here's the key. He doesn't just say rejoice always. He says rejoice in the Lord always. That, that phrase, in the Lord, is one of Paul's favorite phrases. He uses it all over throughout his letters. In fact, here in Philippians, he's used it multiple times. If we had been studying chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Philippians, we would have already heard this again and again and again. But for now, just think of this very section. Go back as far as the beginning of chapter three. Chapter three, verse one, he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. In chapter four, verse one, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. In chapter four, verse two, he says, I urge Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. These are these two ladies in the Philippian church who are not getting along, and he's saying the way you're going to get along is not by changing the other person and is not by changing your circumstances. You're going to live in harmony because you're both living in the Lord. Chapter four, verse 10, he talks about it in his own life. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now you've revived your concern for me. This idea of in the Lord is essential to understanding this whole key to rejoicing. There's something about being in the Lord, whatever that means. Something, according to Jesus, about abiding in the vine that is essential for anyone who wants to live the life of joy. Now, what does it mean to be in the Lord? Well, let's just get a little taste of it, okay? You're gonna need to flip around your Bibles a little bit. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter five. So if you're in Philippians, you're gonna turn left a few pages, go to 2 Corinthians, it's right after 1 Corinthians, which is a great place for it to be. 2 Corinthians, go to chapter five, and look, at me, look with me at verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse 17. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, circle, highlight, underline, asterisk, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, at least partially, it means your past no longer rules you. Yay. It means your past no longer rules you. Okay, I thought maybe you all just had past that you had nothing to be concerned about. It, 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 it's telling us that if you are in Christ, same phrase, same exact term, if you are in Christ, old things have passed away. It means you can move on from the stuff that has been dragging you down. It means that you no longer have to identify yourself with your sinful patterns, with your brokenness, with your, with your uh, failure. It means that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away, all things have become new. I like this, let's keep going. To keep going to the left, couple more books, you go to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, beginning in verse one. Now, as you're turning to Romans, let me tell you that the first seven chapters of Romans is all about 
the power of sin. It's all about the fact that when man sins, he dies. It's all about the fact that sin is the worst possible thing. It's our great enemy and it leads to death. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is sort of the central part of that section, chapters one through seven. Paul is unpacking it theologically for us, but when we're done, we're kind of wiping our brow after reading seven chapters of Romans and going, man, what a mess. And he begins chapter eight this way in verse one. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not only am I a new creature, not only am I set free from the power of my past, but literally the the, uh, punishment for the power of my past, the guilt of my past, the condemnation that comes because I have fallen short of the glory of God is all wiped away, not for everyone, for those who are in Christ. It means a lot to be in Christ. It means you're a new creation. It means there's no condemnation. I like this. Let's keep keep going. Turn to Ephesians chapter three. If you were just in Philippians, it's right there, right next to Philippians. Uh, Go to Ephesians chapter three. And I'm gonna read just six verses at at the beginning of Ephesians chapter three. The question is, what does it mean to be in Christ? Here's what Paul says. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before, by referring to, I'm in the wrong passage. Sorry, go to chapter one. I kept thinking, well, this will make my point at some point. I was wrong. (laughs) We're we're in chapter one. I wrote it down wrong, so it's wrong in the slide. Chapter one, and we're gonna begin in verse three. I I flip-flopped a couple of words there, numbers there. Ephesians one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption, we sang about this this morning, as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of grace. Do you see it? In him, in Christ, in him. In him, what do we have in him? Every spiritual blessing. No condemnation, new creation, every spiritual blessing. Whatever this in Christ thing means, you want it. It's important. And here's the thing. You're a new creation in Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Your circumstances can't change that. You, you, you have no condemnation if you are in Christ, according to Romans 8.1. Your circumstances cannot change that. According to Ephesians chapter one, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Your circumstances cannot 
change that. Now, if that's not enough reason for you to rejoice, I think your rejoicer is broken. (laughs) Friends, why do we keep looking for our circumstances to be our source of joy? Your circumstances can't give you joy. I'm sorry. So whatever it is you're thinking, well, if, I only, if only this, if, I, if only I find the right person, if only I get that promotion, if only I pay my bills off, if only I stop fighting with my spouse, if only my kids, those things are not gonna be a source of joy for you. I'm sorry. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Those things can't take away your joy either. So, so if we're not depending on our circumstances to give us joy, we don't have to worry that a change in our circumstances will take away our joy. So while people who are in Christ uh, have all of these blessings, by contrast, those who are not in Christ are slaves to their circumstances. The best you can hope for is happiness. Best you can hope for is to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get moving in the right direction and maybe things won't go so bad. Maybe tomorrow will be a better day. Positive thinking, look in the mirror. You are a winner. You are, that's the best you can do if you're not in Christ. Because the only place you're gonna find real joy is in Christ. Again, I say, Rejoice. And I love how this fits into our mission we've been talking about in the book of Acts, to be light and salt to a world. And especially, we talked about the last few weeks, our oikos, that circle of influence that we have, those few key people that we interact with on a regular um, basis. Think about the impact of this on that. Look what we're told in verse five. Let's get back to the Philippians passage. If you're in Ephesians, go one more book to the right. You'll be back in Philippians. And and let's get back to Philippians chapter three. And look look again in verse, uh, I'm sorry, I said chapter three. You know what I meant. I meant chapter four. Philippians chapter four. And look again at verse five. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. This is an important part of this. That word translated as gentleness, the Greek term that is translated there as gentleness, is the same word that is translated when referring to Jesus as meekness. The meekness of Jesus, that that characteristic of his life, literally the word means power under control. It's not weakness, it's not mousiness, it's gentleness, it's control, self-control. It refers to that power that is under control. Aristotle used the word to describe it as the opposite of judgment. Gentleness is the opposite of judgmentalism, according to Aristotle. People don't feel judged by a gentle person. They don't feel threatened 
by a gentle person. And when those who don't have this quality in their own lives see it in the lives of those around them, they cannot understand it based on their own experience. How is it that when your circumstances go from good to bad to good to bad, you seem to be even keeled and you have joy through it all? How is it that you can treat people with such dignity, such kindness, such respect, and such honor, no matter what they're doing or what the circumstances are or what's going on in their lives? How is it that you're so different than everybody else. People in your oikos start to notice that. They notice that you're not controlled by your circumstances. And they start to see that somehow you manage to rejoice even when you're sad. And they have no way to explain that from their own life experience. And they're drawn to you and ultimately drawn to Jesus because of it. So how do we hold on to this joyful gentleness that Paul talks about? It's a product, he says, of the nearness of the Lord. Look at the verse again, verse five. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. That's his point. It's the nearness of the Lord. Now, just what does that mean, the Lord is near? Actually, it is a little bit hard to understand. It's a little bit hard to guess, I should say. Because just like in English, usually Greek helps us. Greek is very precise. Usually, if I can look something up in Greek, I can tell you this is the precision of what he's talking about. This this word doesn't help us to read it in Greek or English. Because just like in English, the word near in Greek, it could mean physically near, It can be near in time. It could be uh, relationally near, just like it is for us. So it's hard to say for sure what does he mean when he's saying the Lord is near. But um, the Holy Spirit inspired that specific word for this passage. So why would he do that? Why not say it in in a clear way that pushes away those other possibilities? It's a word that could have various meanings. Which of those meanings is accurate? Near in relationship, near in time, near in space. Which is accurate? All of them. And throughout scripture, that's taught in various places. So this is a biblical principle, regardless of exactly how it might be meant in this particular sentence. On the one hand, it had only been a short time between Jesus' earthly ministry and crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension to the time that Paul is writing this. And he could be saying, have you, have you forgotten already what he showed us? Have you forgotten already what he told us? He, he was just here. He's near. Maybe that's what he meant. On the other hand, maybe he's referring to the Lord's return. We're told throughout the New Testament that the return of the Lord is near. We should be looking expectantly. We should be preparing our lives because the Lord is coming back. And now we look and go, man, they thought that 2,000 years ago. I wonder what near means to God. I don't know. Maybe it's referring to that. He may be speaking of relational nearness. After all, all these passages we've been reading have to do with abiding in him, right? Closeness, relational connection to Jesus. Or he may have been referring to the fact that Jesus is omnipresent. So if you're in Christ, you're never alone. He is always with you. Loneliness, brokenness, uh, separation is not something that we should have to live in if we're in Christ. So which one of those is accurate? Yes. 
My friends, there's an immense benefit in drawing near to God. Will it change your circumstances? I don't know. In all seriousness, in all um, candid honesty, in the last couple weeks, I had two people I love very much in, in very, very dire straits medically, very near death. A very dear friend of mine, uh, Pastor Ishmora, was doing just fine one day, and then suddenly he had two aneurysms and a stroke. He was barely alive when they got him to the hospital, emergency brain surgery to relieve the pressure on his brain, and they told his wife he has less than 1% chance of survival. And if he survives, he won't be walking again. He won't be talking again. He won't have a normal life again. That was two weeks ago. Two days ago, he went home from the hospital walking and talking. I prayed just as fervently for Barbara Henderson's healing. So did a lot of you. Despite those prayers, the Lord decided to take her home. Made me really sad. I'm still sad. Because circumstances can affect your level of happiness. And being near to the Lord and abiding in Him doesn't necessarily change or wipe out the difficult circumstances. Sometimes you find a winning lottery ticket. Sometimes you get hit by a bus. I don't know why. But I do know this. If you are in Christ, if you are abiding in the vine, then your circumstances have no power to take away your joy. That I know. So let me leave you with a couple of very serious, very important questions. The first is very simple. Are you in Christ? Do you have that personal relationship with Jesus on his terms, not on yours? I'm not talking about the, well, I believe he existed and I think he's a good person and I was a good teacher and, and I, I like coming to church. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about have you and Jesus connected in a personal level so that your sins are washed away because you've submitted to his lordship in your life. Are you in Christ? And I say this with gentleness, without judgment. If you're not in Christ, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And so it's an essential question for us to ask ourselves, not did I come to church today? But is Jesus Christ my Lord? Have I turned my life over to him? And if you have not, there is no time like the present. 
Jesus died on the cross so that you and I could be set free from our sin. He died on the cross at least partially so that our circumstances would no longer rule us. He died on the cross so that we could be filled with the Holy Spirit and have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Jesus died and rose again, defeating sin on the cross, defeating death in the empty tomb so that you and I might have life. And and if you're on the other side of that and you don't have that relationship with Jesus, I want you to understand something. You're existing and not living. That's why Jesus said you have to be born again. Yes, you were born. Yes, you're walking around, living, breathing on this earth, struggling, fighting your circumstances, but you have to be spiritually born and that comes by submitting your life to Jesus and inviting him into your life as Lord and Savior. If you haven't done that, you can do that immediately. There's nothing standing between you and that except your willingness to bow your head to the Lord and say, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I want to truly live Come into my life, be my Lord, and I will follow you for the rest of my days and invite Jesus into your life. And if you've never done that today, I beg you, don't wait. Second question, and I'll end. And this is really aimed more at those of us who are very confident that we've already made that decision, we've already invited Jesus into our lives. So let me just ask you this question because it's essential to the whole um, equation. Are you abiding in the vine? <laughs> yeah, are, you, are you wandering off on your own thing? Are your circumstances still allowed to be in control of your life? Or are you drawing near to Jesus? Are you pressing into him? Are you putting your trust in him? Are you letting him have reign in your life? Because in my life, in my experience, even though I have known Jesus for decades, there are still times when if you ask me honestly, Are you abiding in the vine? I'd have to say, oh, uh, there's an interruption. There's some some walls that I've put up. And I just want to say this, guys. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Abide in the vine. Jesus died to make that possible for you. I share these things with you so that your joy may be made full. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now um, very well aware that apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't save ourselves. We don't give ourselves life. We don't give ourselves spiritual life. We cannot bear fruit apart from the vine. And so, Lord, I just want to begin by saying thank you. Thank you for your amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I pray, God, for anyone within the sound of my voice who may be contemplating these things today, who's not so sure that they actually uh, know you that they've actually submitted their lives to you. And I ask you, God, just to, just to take the scales off of people's eyes. Let them see you for who you are. Give them the faith to believe and draw them into your life. 
And I pray for each of us who, although we may be genuinely followers of Jesus, we are stumbling and we've gotten uh, distracted and maybe we're off of a path that you want us on. God, I pray you would bring us back, that, that our confidence would come by knowing the Lord is near, that we would be abiding in you and therefore through you, through us, you could change the world. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.